0: This week on Myths and Legends, we return to the stories from 1001 Nights. There are evil genies, best friends, road trips, and best friends taking road trips to get way too many evil genies. The creature this time is a super easygoing little fisherman who hates it when you fart on him. This is Myths and Legends, episode 169 A Bottle of Gin. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Okay, so we're back in 1001 Nights. If you don't know about that story, it's basically a framing narrative for a bunch of other stories. The collections include Aladdin, Sinbad, Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, and more. Way back in episode 82, we talked about Shaharazad, the queen, and the sultan. Now, the sultan had been hurt when his wife cheated on him. So, vowing to never be cheated on again, he would marry a woman, have their wedding night together, and then execute her the following morning. He did this way too many times, I mean, once is too many, until he married Shaharazad, who came prepared with stories. She would tell a story each night, weaving them together with cliffhangers and nesting one story in another so that, at the end of the night, the sultan was always left wanting more and Shahrazad got to keep her head for another night. The sultan rolled over and kissed his wife. Well, that was nice. Okay, story time. Shahrazad sat up in bed and went over her notes. You know, this has been really nice, you adapting stories from folklore to tell me each night. And our anniversary's coming up, the Sultan noted, while snuggling into his pillow fort to hear tonight's stories. Shahrazad nodded. Yeah, this April, been going for years now. It was a lot of work at times, but she was doing it to make a living, in that she would actually die if she stopped. So she couldn't complain. Yeah, yeah, I love these stories. So interesting, the sultan said before trailing off. Shaharazad closed her notes and stopped her vocal warm-ups. What is it? Totally minor, love the stories, huge fan, but do you always have to talk about the misogyny and the racism and how things are so bad for pretty much anyone who wasn't a king? Shaharazad said that she didn't always talk about how bad things were, but when she did mention it, they were bad. The Sultan asked why she couldn't just tell the stories as they were written, you know? Like, don't change things, just tell them. Shaharazad pinched the bridge of her nose. This again. Well, just regurgitating the stories as they were written, without consideration or commentary, just allows the biases of a previous age to carry forward. She wasn't saying that the stories as they were written weren't important, she was just saying that they weren't sacrosanct. Well, I don't know what that word means, and also I'm bored. Boredom means death, so, you know, get that story started before you die, the king said, and sat back with his arms crossed. Shahrazad pursed her lips. Yeah, this is pretty much exactly what she was talking about, but she wasn't going to press the issue. King Solomon, the king of Israel, wasn't building a temple, writing proverbs, or being tricky when it comes to cutting babies in half. He had a magic ring that he used to bind demons to his will. As we talked about long ago in episode 61, King Solomon was given this ring by the archangel Michael when his chief architect's son kept getting sick. There was a demon that would come in the night and just suck the boy's thumb maybe because the demon was draining some ambiguous life force, or maybe because the boy couldn't fall asleep with a demon sucking his thumb every night and was just wasting away, we don't really know. But we do know that when the boy was given the ring, he threw it at the demon, freezing him in place. The boy then took the demon to Solomon, and the great king got the very cool, very apocryphal demon hunter line added to his resume. It went well for Solomon, until it didn't, Once again, this is covered in the first part of episode 61, which contains no shortage of Lord of the Rings references. Basically, Solomon used the demon's help to build the first temple, but surprise, the demons double-crossed him and sent him 1,500 miles away with one backhanded slap. Not so long story short, Solomon made it back to Jerusalem, took his throne back, and lived a pretty long life. How did he live a long life in the ancient world? he stopped messing with demons. According to today's story, at some point, he stopped the very dubious practice of hunting down demons to press them into menial construction work, and instead, he stamped them with the ring to get them under control and forced them into vessels of copper, stopping the container with molten lead and then sealing it with the ring to trap them forever. He not only did this with demons, but with djinn, or genies, and marids, which is just sort of a super powerful djinn. Well, one day, in Shahrazad's main story for today, Talib, the court poet, is sitting down before the caliph, a king, and Talib is telling of his father, the brave explorer. The father had been trying to reach Sicily when he was blown off course and sent south, and there he landed on a continent, and when the men came to see him, he noticed there... Shahrazad paused. Nope, not saying that. She looked at her notes... And a few lines down, all right. After several depictions that definitely aren't racist, the explorers noticed the fishermen dragging up their nets. The fisherman got one look at his catch and whistled. The entire town came out to sea as the man held the copper container over his head and slammed it onto the ground, destroying the lead stopper with Solomon's seal. Instantly, a disembodied voice bellowed through the air I repent, I repent. Pardon, no prophet of God. I will never return to that which I did aforetime. Soon, a body took form out of clouds and lightning, until a being stood before them, his head level with the mountains, and his face buried in his hands. He looked mournfully at the crowd, furrowed his brow as he searched for someone, and when that someone apparently wasn't there, he glanced from side to side and disappeared in a flash, the smoke trailing off across the sea the explorers from the Middle East were on the ground trembling, while the people from the village just shrugged. That was cool, and they went about their day. When the explorers had recovered enough, they talked to the person in charge. What was all that? He said he had no idea how he knew the extensive backstory with Solomon in the ring, but when Solomon sealed the bean, he didn't simply bury the bottle, or keep it in some cool hidden treasure hoard. Nope, he just tossed the bottles into the ocean. But doesn't that mean he's just sending them all over the world to people who have no idea what these famously evil beings are or what they can do? Talib's father asked. Leader of the city nodded. Yep. And they were legitimately terrifying, but after the first, I don't know, dozen or so, the effect just wears off. They come out of there acting all sad and contrite and stuff, but as soon as they realize Solomon is dead, and no one has the ring to seal them again, they take off. This is all probably okay. Okay, so, remember that we are two stories deep. Talib, the poet, is providing the caliph with some exposition regarding his dad's expedition. All this is in Shahrazad's stories to the sultan. Uh, well, that sounds awesome, the caliph replied. Talib, the poet, cocked an eyebrow, What did? The story? The caliph scoffed. No, that was terrible. But those bottles? Yes, please. I want to see those. Start a collection of dangerous demons and genies that we can't possibly hope to control if their thousand-plus-year-old seals are ever broken. Sign me up. Talib said, I mean, if he wants the bottles, then they could just break to the governor of Morocco, and he will be able to send them back. This was the caliph. He wasn't a guy people said no to. The caliph nodded. Awesome, awesome, great idea. When can you leave? He asked Talib. Talib said that they had messengers for that. He was the court poet. They they were in Arabia. The bottles were in northwestern Africa, in Morocco, almost 4,000 miles away. The caliph laughed. No mere messenger could be entrusted with this important task. Going to get some bottles full of demons for a caliph who might remember that he wanted them when talib came back oh if talib came back sorry talib was about to speak up but the caliph stopped him he couldn't remember where he heard it but someone said that the caliph wasn't a man you said no to he turned to talib wise words don't you think talib sighed he was a poet he understood ominous subtext he would leave immediately Talib's travels could have been worse. The caliph rolled out the 4,000-mile-long red carpet and spared no expense when it came to recovering the bottles, giving Talib and his crew horses, all the cash he could ever need, and letters of introduction to the leaders in all the cities across northern Africa. When they finally reached the governor of Morocco, a man named Musa, he broke the seal in the letter, read it, and said simply, I hear and obey the commander of the faithful." The wizened guide that he summoned, the Sheik, had the same reply. The man was incredibly old and stooped with years of age and travel, but he knew the endless wastes and dangers better than anyone. Talib greeted the man and asked how long he should pack for. A week? week and a half just to be safe? Two and a half years, the Sheik replied. On this journey, we will see all manner of horror and danger, not the least of which being the land itself. At its narrowest crossing, the desert is four days straight of just riding with no source of fresh water, all to a nightmare land, to gather items with which no man should ever meddle, for a king who has likely already forgotten he asked for them. Musa, the governor of Morocco, pursed his lips. Ah, would it be like, uh, super irresponsible of him to ditch his royal duties to go on this road trip with the guys? Before Talib and the sheikh said, that yes, yes it was extremely irresponsible, Musa shrugged and threw up his hands. Welp, that was why it was good to be the boss. He was gonna do it. He put his arms around Talib in the wizened sheik. Boy's quest. Luckily, Musa had a son he could leave in charge. Should, you know, the government need to function over the course of two and a half years. Since the governor was going to go with them, they didn't exactly travel light. It said that, to make sure they had enough for the journey, they brought along 2,000 armored horses and 3,000 camels, you know, just in case, as well as enough people to care for that many animals. And for the first year, things went well. The sheik guided them. The governor brooded up with his thousands of servants, and Talib wondered what he did to get stuck on a never-ending trip through the desert. Then, things got bad. The Sheik, having one job, woke up one morning and had to have a talk with the other two guys. He was lost. They lost the road back when the stars were obscured. Musa, the governor, held up his hands. Now, there was no reason to panic. They just needed to navigate back to the road and then they'd be fine. The sheik glanced back to the dunes that had already erased any presence of their passing. Also, if he could do that, then they would basically know where they were, so, you know. Musa excused himself to go panic. Talib laid down on a rock and sighed. Well, he couldn't go back without the brass bottles and they couldn't go forward because they didn't know which way forward was. Oh, praise God, Musa said. Talib sat up, I mean, sure, but why specifically right now? Oh, wait, what was that? Off in the distance, a massive castle of black stone was built into the mountain. It had a thousand steps leading up to it, and the castle itself was a dome 1,500 feet high. The sheik asked Talib if they should go to it. Talib, eyebrows arched, said definitely not. If one were to, like, describe it in a collection of stories, they would say it was, quote, great and gruesome, a desolate place that, from far off, appeared like it was made of smoke. Whoa, wait, is that the Creepy Black Palace? Musa said, taking a break from panicking to push the two aside. He said his grandfather had once been lost in this land, and had come upon this palace, and thence to the city of brass. They should go. Uh, two things. Talib interjected. First, thence? Who says thence? Second, guys, remember why we're out here. We need to get those bottles. We're on a two-year journey. This is strain hard into side quest territory. Guys, Talib took a deep breath. They were already on their way to the great, gruesome castle. Fantastic. Leaving their contingent of like 3,500 plus people behind they took a small crew past the jewel-encrusted walls up to the gate, which were etched in gold and Greek, which Musa could totally read, but he was going to let the sheik read it because he wanted to make sure the sheik could read Greek. The old man sighed and started reading the verses. Their vestiges, after that they once did do, forewarn us that we in their footsteps must ensue, O thou who haltest by the dwelling for news of folk. "...who have doffed their state and bidden their power adieu, enter this palace." For, back in the real world, with Shaharazad and the sultan, the sultan cut Shaharazad off. Okay, okay, um, that poem's hard to follow. Maybe she wouldn't read it verbatim, but just, like, give a summary and move on? Shaharazad cocked an eyebrow and smirked. Oh, but that's what he wanted, right? Just tell the stories as they were written." Don't change things, just tell them. The Sultan pursed his lips and nodded. Okay, haha, ha, he got it. Just please, no more thence and haltists and doft. Shaharazad nodded and continued. Actually, the whole place was pretty inconsequential from a plot perspective. There were several verses carved in gold throughout the palace, but they were all a warning, not of bodily danger, but of spiritual danger. It was a warning from the king who had near limitless earthly wealth, power, and people at his disposal. But when his time of death came, none of those things helped him at all. I mean, he might have had more satisfaction if, instead of using the wealth to jewel encrust his walls and leaving warning poetry for future generations, he actually did his job as king and used it for his people. But Shaharazad looked at her listener. But of course kings knew better. They were just smart. Awesome definitely deserved their near limitless power they had over their fellow people. It definitely wasn't the case that good examples were so rare that they might as well be unicorns, and instances of their incompetence leading to the suffering of thousands were too numerous to count. The sultan cocked his head. Oh, well, as long as she was saying it wasn't like that, everything was good. Continue. Back in the story, the party continued onward. And by onward, I mean veering wildly off course to see the city of brass. We'll catch up to them on their journey, but that will be right after this. The trio, plus about 3,000, give or take, stood in front of a pillar of brass. A pillar of brass with a head, forearms, eyes, and a slit that spanned the width of its face. I mean, it was basically a demon statue. After they left that sinister-looking palace, they rubbed the hand of a brass statue, which turned and pointed them in the direction of the City of Brass. As they approached the statue, its eyes began to spark which really is never a good sign. Musa stepped back and nudged Tlaib and the sheik forward. Go talk to it, he whispered, while bravely retreating one step at a time. Tlaib took a deep breath and stepped forward to greet the statue. I am an Ifrit of the Jinn, the statue bellowed. Wait, Ifrits are the bad ones, right? Musa said, stepping forward when he saw that the Ifrit was indeed contained in the statue. Like, there are regular djinns or genies marids which are super-powerful genies, and the Ifrits, which are the infernal, demon-like ones. The other two nodded. Yep, that was an okay, but by no means exhaustive summation of the differences. My name is Dahish, and I am confined here by way of punishment. It's a long story, full of love, war, treachery. Talib held up a hand. The Ifrit wasn't going to tell them the way to the city of Brass without going through his life story, was he? No, I am not. The Ifrit boomed. All right, go ahead. To the Ifrit's credit, his life story was kind of cool. In short, he served the king who ruled the entirety of the northern coast of Africa in the ancient world by way of an idol made out of red cornelian. Dahish, the Ifrit, would enter into the belly of the idol and then command a combined force of over six million men, genies, and Ifrit. It was a good gig. Almost everyone adored him, including the beautiful princess, who used to bow down and worship the Ifrit and the idol. I say almost everyone, because one day they got a troubling letter from King Solomon, with a uh, deal of sorts. He wanted to marry the princess. Yay. Oh, and the idol should be destroyed. In return, he wouldn't crush their kingdom. Personally, I think having an ancient world magical army of six million genies gives you a position of strength. And against pretty much anyone else in the ancient world, that would have been true. But when King Solomon came swooping in on his flying carpet, with his demon and genie binding ring, the tide of battle quickly turned. Also, because Solomon had God on his side, the beasts of the earth and even the wind fought for him. Anyway, things went south and Dahish made a break for it. And Solomon pursued the lead Ifrit for three months before, quote, pouncing on him, hollowing out a pillar and sealing the Ifrit away until a time when he could be forgiven for his transgressions against God and people. Tlaib woke up. Huh? He was awake. Was the effort finished? Cool. All right, so they wanted to know about the city of brass and all that, but he wanted to know about the bottles of gin. Ha, gin. But seriously, Solomon sealed a bunch of gin away in brass bottles. Tahish said that he was imprisoned in a pillar for like a thousand years and wouldn't have any information that Tlaib and his friends didn't already have, but instead informed them that the members of his demon cohort had washed up in the Sea of Al-Qaqar, near the dwelling of the descendants of Noah. Sultan interjected again, wait, wouldn't everyone on earth be a descendant of Noah? I mean, it was just his family who survived the flood, right? Scheherazade winced. Yeah, remember those kind of damaging, antiquated views on certain things? Well, this is one of them. There is a frankly, pretty racist interpretation of a curse that happened to one of Noah's grandsons that's being used to justify slavery of people from Africa. The sultan thought about it. Oh, the curse of Ham. Got it. So when it's referring to the sons of Noah, it's specifically referring to this interpretation. Yep, Shaharazad said, finishing his sentence. Ugh, yuck, the sultan said, and bade Shaharazad to continue. When the others asked to heesh about the city of Brass, He told them the directions. Also, you know, if someone wanted to, like, scratch off the seal or anything, keeping him bound to this pillar for a thousand years, that would be great. Anyone? Cool. Well, if anyone changes their minds, he'll be here. I mean, not by choice, but... Okay. Bye, guys. It was another couple of weeks before, finally, they stood outside the legendary city of brass. Musa had sent a contingent of his men around the city. Like the dome that started them on this journey to the city of brass, the city was built from black stone. But unlike the dome, it had two towers of brass that looked like flames from far off. They didn't even see a gate as they approached. And soon, Musa's men returned. They rode camels for two and a half days, but not only didn't find any gate, but no crack in the walls at all. It was impregnable. The trio rode to the top of the tallest hill in the area to look down on the city. And there, they found more gilded Greek words, which again, the sheik translated. "O son of Adam, how heedless are you of what is before you. Your cup is death, and soon it must be drained to the dregs. Look to yourself before you enter the grave. Look to the city, to everything they had. And yet, nothing could ward off death, or bribe him. Their strongholds and treasures were unavailing against heaven's decree. Talib and the Sheik read it, but Musa was writing it all down on paper, weeping. Maybe this journey was what he needed. I mean, after five tablets, he swooned he was so convicted and overcome. So, I guess the words seemed to have touched a nerve. After six tablets, all of which said basically the same thing, and ward off travelers from the destruction that awaited them, both spiritually and in the city, the trio of leaders decided, yeah, let's try to crack that place open and see what we can get into. Seeing as there was no way through the walls, they decided to go over them. Despite the city looking beautiful from a distance, they hadn't seen a single person inside, so there shouldn't be anyone trying to stop them. After, no joke, another month to build a ladder, the first guy ascended, and disappeared over the wall. <sighs> By Allah, you're good looking, the men heard. And then, with a step from the edge, the man descended, quickly, without the ladder. Diving to the side, but still catching bits of Scout 1's splatter, the trio didn't know what to think, until another man came up to them. That guy was obviously having a hard time with life on the road. Let him go. So they did, and he, too, ascended the ladder. As soon as he was at the top, he said simply, well done, well done, before taking a step from the edge and landing near the trio. They should probably stand farther back. Ten more splatters, and the trio was starting to think that this wasn't the best option. If you're lost in the wilderness... It seems like a very bad idea to send your guide up after the dozen men saw what was at the top of the wall and flung themselves to their deaths. But Musa wasn't going because he had a kingdom to govern and Talib made it very clear that this was not his deal at all. He was just here for some bottles. So, the elderly sheik climbed. When he made it to the top, the people below heard a laugh and brought up the tarp in preparation. But there was no splatter. There was no noise at all for 20 minutes, as the men stood with bated breath. There was no noise, until the creak of gears morphed into the thunder and boom of doors hundreds of feet tall as they separated. The city of brass was open. In the end, from the still-alive sheik, they learned that there was an enchantment on the city where anyone who came over the walls would see 10 beautiful women who, for some reason, would fill them with the urge to throw themselves back over the wall. When the sheikh saw them, he talked himself down with verses from, quote, the Book of God the Most High. Also, it said that he looked down and saw the remains of 12 guys who jumped previously, so that was a pretty good deterrent. Anyway, once he dispelled the enchantment, he made his way along the wall where... Reaching into the navel of a brass horseman, as we all would do in any situation where the opportunity presents itself, he turned a ring, which revealed the stairway down to the guardhouse. After the doors opened, and many hugs were had among the trio, the sheik cautioned that half of the men, probably over a thousand people, should stay outside, lest there be traps inside. When the trio and like 1,500 guys entered the city of brass, they didn't find traps, but they did find death. Corpses rotting in their silk linens lay all over the city, on couches, sitting in the streets, reclining in their mansions. The market was full of weapons, gold, medicine, gemstones, all from worlds away. Talib was on it when he saw Musa pick up a diary and read about how the people long ate and drank their fill, but now they were food for worms. He caught Musa before one of the leader's trademark swoons it wasn't until they made their way to the marble jewel-encrusted pavilions that they met the first inhabitant of the city of Brass. Of course, she was dead, and they didn't know that until they waved their hands in front of her face after bowing low. She was the last queen of the city, and she had had herself embalmed, stuffed, Little column A, little column B. Regardless, she sat there all queenly on her throne, flanked by two slaves who had had the same, hopefully post-death treatment. Before them was yet another tablet with gold inset Greek writing. Talid made sure that Musa was sitting for this read. The queen had written that she wasn't Pharaoh. She wasn't Nimrod. She wasn't a monster. She had freed slaves and distributed her own riches among her people but the calamities still came. They noticed the crops began to fail more and more until for seven years, they had nothing. So the queen gathered what money she had left and sent it out with messengers in all directions to all the cities so that perhaps someone could help them. Whether because of tragedy or greed, no one returned. The people fell upon the food stores, then the beasts of burden, then even the seeds and whatever greenery still remained in the city. Despite being able to build such a massive city with piles of riches, they couldn't save themselves from the onslaught of nature. When this became apparent, the queen ordered the gate shut for the last time. And, under her leadership, the city was saved from tearing itself apart. Everyone was resigned to their fate and died in peace. So, dear travelers, with this example before you, don't cling to riches. From your hands, all treasures will be snatched away. Fair and foul wealth alike was no use in the end. We are simply a caravan halting in this world for the night, waiting to leave again in the morning. You truly could not take it with you. And with that in mind, the queen wrote that no one should take the riches off her body. They covered her nakedness and they were her furniture for her last journey. Don't be a jerk. The trio was quiet. Musa, of course, fainted on the couch. And even outside of the story, the sultan sat there thoughtfully with Scheherazade. He stroked his beard. Wow. It just... Everyone died. It's like death doesn't discriminate, you know? Between the sinners and the saints, it takes and... Shahrazad cut him off. Not sure how much we can actually use of that before we're infringing. She also liked her references to be a bit more veiled. So, yeah, just please. Back in the city of brass, the men had listened to this story on the transience of wealth in this world and the poisonous nature of greed and kind of completely ignored it because, hey, looting. Even Tlaib got in on the fun of kind of missing the point of all of the gilded tablets. He looked at the queen. Huh, that necklace would be an awesome gift for a woman back home and it's not like the queen would know. She was long dead. He shrugged and ascended the stairs. Moose and the sheik tried to say something. When Talib took that last step, the stone beneath his feet moved maybe half an inch. Before he could react, the mace from one embalmed slave came down on his back, while the sword at the other sliced his neck. Talib's head rolled down the stairs, before he even touched the queen. What? The sultan screamed at Shahrazad? Seriously? He's like our protagonist, and he's dead with no warning? I mean, he was the lens through which we saw this world. Couldn't Scheherazade make him like not dead? She was telling the story. I know, I know, she said, but she couldn't change the story, not that much. True, he died in a meaningless way after coming to his grave without seeing his quest completed. But we don't get to choose the time we leave this earth. Some of our quests will remain incomplete. I mean, not messing with booby-trapped queens seems like a pretty solid start, though, the sultan said. Shahrazad agreed, absolutely. Okay, continuing on with the story. The crew, Sans Talib, looted the city with as much as they could carry before the sheik closed the gate and climb down the ladder. Even without Talib nagging them, they still decided to finish the quest. I mean, the caliph was the caliph, so they eventually worked their way to a kingdom on the coast. And, after some explanation, the people there said that, yeah, they would be happy to unload some of the demon bottles that kept washing up. Also, remember that kind of racist Sons of Noah bit? Well, it turns out that they kind of hardcore buried the lead because these people are also mermen and mermaids. Yeah, why not just say that? The merpeople dove down and collected as many of the bottles as they could, in addition to a chest full of water, into which a particularly faithful merman shut himself. He had to do it. He had to go meet the caliph. So, they made the overland trip back to the Middle East. Demon bottles in tow. They arrived three years after Talib left. Bowing low, they explained that Talib had led their journey, being a little annoying, but a good guy. He died in the city of Brass. The Caliph cocked an eyebrow. Who? Oh, were those the bottles? Gimme, gimme. He took the first and slammed it against his stone. The weathered leg cracked and crumbled, and an Ifrit shot from the top of it, going through the standard jinn script of begging for forgiveness before realizing that Solomon wasn't present, and noping on out of there before anyone produced a way of rebinding him. The whole court clapped. That was awesome. Releasing vengeful beings of untold power and, in the demon's case, malice, was a great way to spend the afternoon. The sheik went back home, and presumably continued to non-guide people through the wilderness, while Musa decided that he had seen too much. He didn't want riches or power anymore but to live out his life in peace and devotion. He retired to Jerusalem, and his son was named the governor. And finally, most important of all, the devoted merman, who was transported across the desert in a box full of water to see the caliph. Yeah, he died. The story makes a point of saying that the desert was too hot, and the water evaporated, killing the merman. The end. sultan sat back huh Shahrazad's eyes widened he didn't like it the sultan thought about it I mean it kind of petered out there at the end with the main character dying in the city of brass and all but the kings came out alright what with them retiring in comfort and getting fun demon fireworks and really weren't the kings the only people who mattered in the story so yeah good story Shaharza breathed, good, good. She was so glad that he liked it and also that she wasn't going to die. She sat back with her husband and watched the sunrise on yet another morning. It had been years since all of this had started, but she was daring to hope that somehow she might beat the odds. Somehow she could live and maybe, just maybe, the Sultan was changing. Hey hon, what's tomorrow's story? The Sultan asked. Shahrazad looked down. Oh, it's called The Malice of Women. The Sultan laughed. Awesome. Shahrazad leaned back and watched the sunrise. Well, they still had time. If you'd like to support the show and get cool stuff the myths and legends store is back up and running we've completely restocked it and added some new items like the much requested rules of myths and legends t-shirt as well as a cool new sticker pack with illustrations of the buttercat baba yaga and the clericon to check out that and all the other things we have on there you can find the store at mythpodcast.com store or through the link in the show notes The creature this time is the Kijimuna, from Japan. More specifically, from the islands of Okinawa. They are creatures about the size of your average human child, and they are living their best lives. They live in banyan trees, and really, they just want to help. And also mess with your stuff sometimes. Okay, it's about 50-50. They have whole societies of big-headed, red-body-hair-covered creatures, with the men having, according to one source very large and prominent testicles. They love to fish, but they only like to eat one of the eyes of the fish before leaving the rest of it, leading to a pretty symbiotic relationship between them and the humans of the islands. When they like a human, they'll cook dinner for them, spend the holidays with them, and even offer to carry a human on its back and leap over the mountains. If they don't like a human, or just feel like messing with someone, they'll sabotage your boats, murder your livestock, trap you forever in a hollow tree aerial style, or sit on your chest while you sleep, taking away your ability to breathe. So, yeah. Stay on their good side. One way to stay on their good side? Don't mess with their trees. If you cut or burn one down, they will hate you and mess with you for as long as they live. If you happen to find a diminutive monster coming after you, remember that they hate chickens, pots and pans, and octopuses. Oh, and farting. One way to both earn their ire and keep them away? Farting, especially if they're carrying you. Yeah, they really hate it when they're doing a friend a favor by letting them on their back and carrying them up a mountain and that friend repays them by farting on their back. Which, yeah, I get that. I'd be angry too. Maybe not enough to imprison someone in a hollow tree or murder a bunch of cows, but close. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And I want to say thanks again to SimpliSafe for sponsoring us this, this week. With Safe, you get comprehensive, enterprise-level security for your own home. If there's a break-in, Safe uses real video evidence to give police an eyewitness account of the crime and it costs just 50 cents a day. Visit SimplySafe.com legends. You'll get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. You've got nothing to lose. Go down to SimplySafe.com slash legends so they know our show sent you. That's SimplySafe.com slash legends. Alright, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.